Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode. Today I'm talking about why sleep is important for anxiety. Probably can already all guess, but it's good to just review anyways. I've talked a lot about the brain and how easy our prefrontal cortex is just taken offline from that old brain, the amygdala. And lack of sleep, that just makes everything worse. Everything's just worse when we don't have enough sleep, right? Because it's just so hard to do the things that we need to do to manage anxiety while also making sure that anxiety and our overall distress is limited. So to be able to tame that part of the brain, we need to be able to have proper sleep because otherwise nothing's going to work. So we know that sleep deprivation, it just makes people feel more anxious throughout their day, even people who aren't necessarily already anxious. And, and we tend to catastrophize far more than when we get a good night's sleep. So we just know our overall distress, anxiety is so much worse. So what is sleep exactly? Maybe something we've never really thought of. It's a state of consciousness where we're not interacting with our surroundings. We're disengaged from all of our surroundings. So what what a lot of people might not actually know is that our brain can be quite active during sleep because it's important for everything that happens in the body and it really affects how we function physically as well as mentally the next day. But it also affects our long-term psychological and physical health. So sleep deprivation can have a lot of problems. Sleep is really important. I mean, it's important for everybody, but it's really important for kiddos because it affects every part of their body and mind. It's the only time that they have to rest and, and to recharge. And we know that poor sleep, it's associated with aggression and problem behaviors and learning and memory and attention and processing and sequential thinking and decision-making and creativity, pretty much everything we need our kids to do. So all of that is disrupted. And when all of that's disrupted, I mean, their academic success, their learning at school is gonna be problematic language development, reasoning, problem solving, and their overall mood and resiliency, all of those things are affected. So when kiddos, they're not getting enough sleep, we see these mood swings where we see a lot of irritability and hyperactivity. I mean, you've seen kiddos who haven't had enough sleep. And a lot of kids, they look like they've got ADHD because they can't pay attention. And when I do my ADHD assessments, I'm often asking about sleep. And is there something underlying like sleep apnea or some sort of sleep disorder that could be making this kiddo look like they have ADHD? Poor sleep, it can affect our motor skill development, our executive functioning skills, poor eating and obesity. We eat more when we're tired. There's all sorts of health risks. I can go on and on and on and on. It's just so important for all of those reasons. And that's important for teens as well. But sleep becomes even more important for teens, especially since a lot of them are just not getting the sleep that they need because, you know, they've got a lot of stressors. They've got late night studying and assignments. They've got all of those types of things happening, pressures to hang out with friends and to fulfill responsibilities. And now they're working and all of those things can be quite stressful. But also the fact that their biological system changes. All of that changes in their brain and it really affects when they feel tired. So melatonin, for example, it's often released later in the teenage brain than adults. So they want to stay up later. And that's worsened when they have access to screens. So we know that sleep is critical, not only for mental health and learning, but even things like reducing the amount of accidents that they have when they start driving, or we see, you know, reduction in injuries for sports when they get good night's sleep can, can, you know, compared to other kids who aren't getting sleep, they have way more sports injuries. Uh, We also know that, you know, really, it's a public health problem. 
it's a risk factor for all sorts of things, not even just risky behaviors and accidents and, and, and impulsivity, things like that, but even substance abuse and lots of other mental health problems. So, you know, I always make sleep a priority for my teens, even if I get a lot of eye rolls. I try not to get eye rolls from any of my teens, but this is what I definitely do. So, you know, even for my daughter, I mean, if she's got a, a late night practice or a game, you know, she's at that age where she's, she might have a 10 o'clock game on a school night. You know what? She doesn't go. Her sleep is a priority. One thing with teens to think about is they tend to mimic their parents' sleep habits. We really got to consider our own sleep habits. Or if you're working with families, you know, checking in what parents' sleep habits look like, because that might be something, you know, what they could be modeling and what they could be doing differently just to help promote positive sleep hygiene. Now, I know the sleep piece is really tricky because so many anxious kiddos have trouble with sleep. I mean, they're just plagued. They're trying to go to sleep. Maybe they do all the things that we tell them to do and they've got all these racing worries at night that just makes it really hard to fall asleep. Bedtime, we know it's just a really bad time because they're ruminating and ruminating. And that's when they seem to have a moment where they can start thinking about everything and processing everything that's happened in their day, their day. But it's really bad timing to do that because it's just hyper arousing the brain when we start ruminating right before bed. And then that leads to insomnia. So yes, I know how hard it is when we're stressed out. And then, you know, when kiddos who are anxious about falling asleep because they're not getting asleep and now they got to fall asleep. And then that's a whole other issue that I'm going to address in the future episode, because that just creates even more anxiety because now they're stressing about not sleeping and <laughs> it just on and on it goes, but it just totally disrupts those sleep routines. And that ruminating before sleep, it doesn't only make falling asleep hard, but it actually changes their sleep cycles. So for example, rapid eye movement, the REM sleep piece, that's affected that's the part of the sleep that involves our vivid dreaming. And actually, my, my daughter was just sleepwalking three nights ago. I think it was about three night, nights ago. And she woke up in the middle of the REM. And now for the past two nights since then, my sleep has been thrown completely out of whack because she's woken me up in the middle of my REM. So, you know, so it, it's just tricky when we're woken up in that time we get into this sleep deprivation and it's really hard. We can't catch up. We know that we can't catch up. So today, you know, I've been up since like three o'clock in the morning. I'm very tired. Probably why I'm a little bit more mumbly and jumbly today more than usual. But it really is disruptive when we have, to, when we wake up in the REM sleep. So both of us have been off our rockers for the past couple of days. Now, when we look at anxious kiddos, we know that they're more likely to have nightmares as well, or even just disturbing dreams, which also disrupt sleep. So I know too for myself when I'm really stressed because, you know, I've messed something up, for example, or if I've just got a lot on my plate, I have really terrifying messed up dreams. And then those nightmares that can contribute to sleep anxiety because now kids are more scared of going to sleep. And what are the nightmares going to bring? Sometimes it's just the falling asleep part that's hard, but a lot of our kiddos and teens, especially I find they have trouble staying asleep as well. And then they're waking up anxious in the middle of the night. And I know, again, I'm bad for this because I <laughs> wake up thinking, oh my gosh, I've got so much to do, but I do try to do a little body scan and I can usually fall asleep, you know, if, if I do end up waking up. But the problem with waking up in the middle of the night is getting that brain aroused, right? And, and now we're aroused with work. And then we have this sleep fragmentation because now we're awake because of something else going on. Sorry, if you hear rumbling, my dog is getting into my recycling. I don't know why she's doing that. If 
So I apologize for that sound that I'm probably not going to be able to edit out. So when we wake up in the middle of the night, that's really problematic because like I said, the sleep fragmentation that impairs both the quantity and the quality of sleep that our anxious brain is getting. So there's this vicious cycle because it's not just that anxiety that affects sleep. Poor sleep contributes to that anxiety and definitely worsens anxiety. And so anxious kiddos, they're especially sensitive to not getting enough sleep. So while you know, some kids might be able to tolerate missing a night, you know, but a lot of kiddos with the sensitive brains, they can't and they're affected because sleep does affect our mood and overall emotional well-being and their ability to cope. So there's this bi-directional relationship where anxiety and sleep deprivation, they're self-reinforcing. So worrying causes poor sleep and poor sleep makes our anxiety worse, which just makes sleep worse, which makes anxiety worse. So it's that, you know, reciprocal sort of vicious cycle that we get into. But we know that sleep actually has a bigger role than we might have thought originally and that maybe what we think about. And it's not just that anxiety causes poor sleep. And I think that that's something that we often think about, that because I'm anxious, now I can't sleep. What we now know is that not getting enough sleep actually activates the same parts of the brain that were active when anxiety is triggered. So what that means is we found that sleep loss actually triggers the brain activity associated with anxiety. So oftentimes it's not just that anxiety affects sleep, sleep is actually triggering anxiety in the first place. And so when we spend more time in the REM phase of sleep, that reduces the activity in the area of the brain that are active when we're anxious. And so sleep directly affects that anxious brain. So we need to address sleep as a key part of anxiety intervention. We can't just put it on the back burner and think, oh, if I work on anxiety, sleep's going to get better. That's not necessarily true because sleep is actually what's protecting us against our worries. It's actually going to trigger our worries and our anxiety. So that's really the first thing that we really need to target is sleep because sleep can protect us from that anxiety in the first place and sleep brings good mood. It's all good all the way around. So to manage anxiety effectively, we need to get that sleep under control. I even know for myself, you know, when, when I'm not getting enough sleep, I have really bad chest pains when I, when I, you know, wake up in the middle of the night or I have problems falling asleep. I find when I have problems falling asleep, I'm still waking up even earlier and I'm way more stressed. And the same is true for our kiddos, but tenfold. How much sleep they get really determines how well they can deal with anxiety and worries and stressors and everything else that's going on. And so you know, they're just working so much harder when they haven't had enough sleep. And that makes our progress with any work that we do with anxiety limited. So that's why we really need to focus on that. And if we know if that keeps happening, that lack of sleep becomes so chronic and it becomes a chronic stressor on their whole system. And it actually impairs how the brain works and it can shrink our brain. So things like our hippocampus, that's our memory stores. So we can get really foggy and then we become depressed and we're just, you know, way more irritable and snappy over time, we're at greater risk for things like dementia and Alzheimer's, which I am for myself terrified of. So really trying to make sleep more of a priority for myself and for all of my family, because we know how important it is. The body system, it just becomes so overloaded when we have that lack of sleep. So it's not just the mental well-being. Our whole body becomes overloaded. And we know that poor sleep, it just mucks up our hormone levels. And that contributes to higher levels of distress and anxiety because it's the adrenal 
that adrenaline, it's just skyrocketing in the body. And we know a lot of our anxious and even sad kiddos have trouble with sleep, whether falling or staying asleep like that. But it's contributing to other things too. Now they've got this adrenaline sleep going through their body, it's disrupting how their brain works, it's disrupting their whole sleep patterns. And we know that that's contributing to, you know, learning difficulties, irritability, but that is leading to agitation, aggression, behavioral difficulties, inattention, hyperactivity, all the things that we worry about and all the things that parents are bringing their kids in for. Now, even really healthy people, they can exhibit psychosis and hallucinations when they're really extremely sleep deprived. So we got to get on this. You know, it's not just something that we can hope that gets better. So it's really important to know whether anxious kiddos are sleep deprived because that's such a problem. So first of all, you got to rule out sleep apnea 100% because that causes problems with breathing and it interrupts their sleep. And we know kiddos with sleep apnea, they're way more prone to more mental health problems above and beyond anxiety. So we need to be able to rule that out. I always say, go see your doctor first. Look at all of these other things that could be happening. Now, the signs of sleep deprivation, they're pretty obvious once you get to know what to watch out for. Feeling hungry or thirsty, that could be a sign, you know, so above and beyond what their normal is, if they're always feeling hungry or thirsty, and I know that's definitely a sign for me around the thirst piece, we do tend to be a little bit munchier, but but look for that. Forgetfulness, of course, more than what we would expect, or just a fogginess or confusion on the one hand, but it can go all the way to aggression and just these huge emotional outbursts. If kiddos are drowsy throughout the day and they're falling asleep, that's a pretty good sign they're not getting enough sleep. And I know I always fall asleep by talking about myself a lot today, but it's you know, sleep's a huge issue for me. And I, and I know my functioning is way worse, even on, you know, a fairly good day. If I've had not had good sleep, everything can go down the toilet. And I used to fall asleep driving. So that was a huge indicator that I wasn't getting enough sleep because that's really dangerous too. It also made me realize I had ADHD, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but sleep deprivation really made everything so much worse. And if kids fall asleep the minute their heads hit the pillow, that's a good sign too. I actually had a sleepover date with my daughter two weekends ago and she fell asleep as she was talking, like literally as she was talking, she's falling asleep. She's been going to bed late, you know, that whole week before there was just games and she had to go to her sister's games and she had her own practices and everything else that was going on. So I know that she was in sleep debt. And, and once we have that sleep debt, you know, we can't really make it up. There's no such thing as catching up on it. So we really need to be careful. But, you know, so on the one hand, they might be falling asleep, but on the other hand, they might be having trouble falling asleep. That can also be a sign that they're not getting enough sleep and that their sleep circadian rhythms are just sort of messed up. So I think that that's, you know, something to think about. We can also think about how much our kids should be sleeping. When we look at a lot of the recommendations, so the National Sleep Foundation, for example, there's lots of different places, but toddlers, you know, about 11 to 14 hours. So our early little guys, one to two, three years old, 11 to 14 hours. Once they get into preschool, it's about 10 to 13 hours. Um, once they hit grade school, so we're talking, you know, six to 13. So early elementary, middle school, about nine to 11 hours. Teens, the recommendation is 14 to, or like, so for 14 to 17 year olds, the recommendation is about eight to 10 hours. But I would say really understanding the brain and how much 
learning is happening, how powerful their brain is, but how vulnerable their brain is and everything that's going on in terms of hormones and all the changes that that are happening in their brain, you really want to stick to that higher end, closer to the 10 hours. They almost need more than our toddlers do and preschoolers do really. Adults, of course, we know, you know, seven to nine hours, but it really varies. Um, on on what's happening. And so we just got to remember what their needs are. Generally speaking, we know melatonin comes in so much later for our teenagers. And so really, they should be able to go to school. And we actually see the research showing when there's a later school start, because then they're able to sleep in and get a little bit more sleep, they actually do quite a bit better. So those are all really important things to think about. What to do? What do we do? With sleep, sleep causes so much distress, so many problems. Whenever I work with anxious kiddos or even adults, really any anxiety or or really anything that I'm working on, but definitely anxiety, I really want to make sure that sleep's a priority, like I said, because we just aren't going to make any progress that we could be making. I mean, our battle is always going to be this uphill battle with lots of falling backwards. So truly, it's one of the most important first pieces of intervention. So there's two key parts of sleep that we need to look at. The first are sleep habits. Sleep habits, they're so important so they can become automatic, right? And and I know, you know, you think of your own bedtime. I'm just like a quick, oh, let me just check my email. And that's my pattern. And then I check email and then it's hours later. We don't want to do that. We just want to make it so automatic that it's like, ding, nine o'clock, go brush my teeth, wash my face, go to bed, read maybe and go to bed. We just want to make it automatic so our brain doesn't have to think about it because the more we have to think about it, especially at night, we just don't have the brain power to follow through. So we, if we have it so automatic, we're creating this positively reinforcing process. So bad habits they only ingrain negative consequences. So it's really good for the whole family to be creating these automatic processes because that's going to reinforce our brain and whatever reinforces our brain is going to be more likely to happen in day-to-day life. So we just really need to emphasize sleep is a priority for everyone and, and make it a family affair. Now it's helpful to start backwards from when kids have to wake up in the morning because we know sleep cycles are 90 minutes each. So we don't want them waking up in the middle of a sleep cycle. That's really bad because they're just going to feel so groggy. They're not going to want to get up. It's going to be a fight for everyone. It's pretty disruptive. So start looking at what their optimal bedtime is. So, you know, for my daughter, who's almost 11, we count back nine or 10 and a half hours. She probably could sleep 10 and a half hours, but she doesn't want to go to bed that early. So nine hours is ideal. And then we count back. So, you know, if I need to wake up at seven o'clock, counting back that nine hours, because that's increments of 90 minutes. And then from there, when she should be ideally falling asleep, we want to count back another half hour, 45 minutes. That's going to be when our bedtime routine should be starting. So if I know that she has to fall asleep at, you know, 8.30, we're going to count back half an hour to 45 minutes, so quarter to eight. That's when we're going to start our bedtime routine. And doing the same thing is really important just to help ingrain that automatic process. Now, sometimes it's hard just to jump in and start right off the bat. So if you've got a kiddo that's going to bed, I was just talking to a girl today, grade six, who's going to bed at 11, 1130. That is so late. So to expect her to all of a sudden tonight, start going to bed at nine, that can be really hard. (laughs) 
So it's okay to start small. If you're encouraging parents to start really small, they can think of changing, you know, little bit by little bit so everybody can feel successful. So for that girl, maybe instead of going to bed at 11, she's going to start things 15 minutes earlier so that she's in bed at 1045. And then we can slowly, you know, increase. If it's easier just to start at nine, then that's fine too. Just get them up earlier, wake up earlier to get them tired earlier. Now, creating a solid sleep plan, that's so important. And I really encourage families to adopt this really for everyone. Like I said, it's not just the anxious child or teen. The focus is really both on the kids and the parents, the whole family. And you want to look at the amount of sleep our kids are getting for sure, as well as the quality of sleep. Both are so important. So of course, like I said, set a consistent sleep schedule. It's really important to wake up at the same time every day, even on the weekends and holidays. And I know there's always groans, but that's so important. And then, of course, going to bed at the same time, too, is really helpful. We should be doing that. And I know people love to sleep in on weekends. I know, I know. My youngest, it's always like, yes, I get to sleep in. But really, it's so hard. It just throws our sleep cycles out of whack. And it just makes it so much harder, you know, to get up to go to school or work on Monday. And it's very anxiety provoking. So, you know, that's something to think about. Now, we want to pair our brains with sleep. So having that consistent bedtime routine, like I said, is very helpful. And we want to make sure that that routine is very calming. It's slowing down our body. It's slowing down our brain. So really, it's about establishing the same activities the last 30 or, like I said, 45 minutes before bed. 45 minutes is probably a little bit better, so it's not rushed. Maybe setting a bedtime alarm. So it's not just a morning alarm. It's a bedtime alarm to remind them, Kate, it's time to get ready for bed. And then following the same steps and engaging in the same activities every night, that can help cue our brain you know, that it's bedtime. Oh, there's the alarm. Going to go brush my teeth, put on my pajamas, snuggle into bed, do a little meditation or read. So for activities, you know, there's, of course, the getting into pajamas, brushing teeth, whatever, you know, hygiene things that need to get done. We want to make sure that anything that they're doing is part of their bedtime routine. They're calm, they're quiet, they're relaxing. You want to avoid loud music or roughhousing. I think my, my husband just thinks right before bedtime is the best time to start tickling everyone. Not the best time. It could be even light stretching. My oldest one, that's what she's starting to do is just do a little bit of stretching, mostly because she's so, you know, um, inflexible. She gets so tight from her, her sport. So she wants to stay limber. Reading's great only though, as long as it's not too stimulating, because I've got a lot of kiddos who are reading, like they're into Percy Jackson and they're like, this is amazing. Or Harry Potter. And they're like, I can't put it down. What's going to happen next? So if it's too engaging, you don't want to do that. Make sure you leave those for other times. Now, I talk about relaxation. It's not a great strategy for kiddos when they're feeling anxious, but it's fantastic for sleep. And, you know, relaxation is still really important to help just lower our overall, you know, arousal level or sensitive brain, the trigger happy brain. It helps lower all of that arousal level. So relaxation is definitely uber helpful. It's all about timing. So, you know, when the child is anxious, that's not the time to be like, just calm down. Let's use your relaxation strategies. Right before bedtime, that's a fantastic time. You know, we can start working on some of that deep breathing. We could be using some 
guided imagery or mindfulness meditations, you know, and, and that can work too. If kiddos wake up in the middle of the night and they know how to do a really good body scan that can pair their brain with, oh, I'm doing a body scan. That's my cue to fall asleep. I have kiddos, it's really about experimenting with lots of different things to help them relax. And that's helpful too, because kids can then focus on what relaxation exercises they're going to experiment rather than worrying about trying to fall asleep. So the goal isn't fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep, because the more we think, oh my gosh, I haven't fallen asleep yet. It could just be so anxiety provoking. So if it's focusing on the relaxation piece, gets their mind off the worries about falling asleep. And as soon as we, you know, can get our mind off, it's, it's way easier because once we start worrying about falling asleep, we just get into that whole lot of problems. That's just getting them stuck in anxiety. So that's important to think about. Screens. Screens are non-negotiable, especially before bedtime. They have to go off, ideally two hours before bedtime. But I'm sure lots of people will find that very difficult. But that's really ideal. Um, but for sure, one hour because it's just too stimulating for the brain and it makes it really hard to fall asleep because it's stopping our natural occurring melatonin to kick in and it actually decreases that melatonin. So we want to avoid that. We definitely want to avoid techno cocoons. So that's where kiddos have any electronics in their bedroom. Get them out because it only disrupts sleep. Even if they're turning off their phone, that the brain is still activated because it still could be thinking about what am I missing out on, right? And especially teenagers, the whole FOMO, fear of missing out, they're, they're thinking about that even if the phone is turned off. So we just want it out of the room. So we got to look at that. And, and, you know, in addition to how devices, like I said, it affects that melatonin, which is really important for being able to fall asleep in the first place. They could be watching or reading something that also triggers that anxiety alarms. And then it makes it really hard to fall asleep because now they've seen something stimulating or reading something stimulating. And now adrenaline's pumping in their body. And when that's happening, the last thing that the brain wants to do is go to sleep. Kids could have a hot bath. But I always, you know, I, I say that with caution, it cannot be too close to bedtime because we need the body to be cooling down. And so, you know, if we're having a hot bath right before bedtime, we're heating up the body, right? And so we're, we're not, we're doing the exact opposite of what the body needs to be doing. So that's not a great idea. Hot bath, heat the body up and jump into bed. And that's why exercise before bed isn't a great idea either. But exercise is uber helpful for anxiety and it's really helpful for sleep. But earlier in the day, I work out first thing in the morning. That's really the best time to work out because it helps set the day off right. It's just getting our whole mood and our whole system going. Um, my girls, they have to walk a good distance to get to school because they're kind of on the outskirts of, of what the boundaries are for school. So it's a really good distance to get to school. And oftentimes my little one will actually come down if she gets up early enough to work out with me when she gets up and, and then we go for a dog, oh, a dog walk right after. And so that can just really get them going. It helps alert them. They feel better because all of their dopamine and serotonin and everything's going right off the bat. And so that's going to be helpful with sleep later. We just want to make sure that they're not exercising too close to bedtime. So really earlier in the day is better, but right after school is okay too. Uh, so consistency in terms of bedtime routines is important, but our whole circadian rhythm, it also benefits from having a consistent time when we eat, like consistent meal times. If we're waiting too long, it's harder to get to sleep later on as well. So we don't want to eat a big meal before before, you know, going to sleep or having dinner right before we go to sleep, because now our body, it can't restore itself while we sleep, because now it has to 
plow through all that food and digest all that food. But sleep is so important. It's an important function of sleep. And, you know, I know for myself, if I'm eating a bowl of popcorn after dinner, that just keeps me up all night with a stomach ache. So although anytime really popcorn causes me a stomach ache right before bedtime, so after dinner, it's just horrible. So dinner, we want to have those big meals, ideally three hours before bedtime. We don't want them later because the body really has to be able to rest and restore itself. If a snack's needed, and I know a lot of my kiddos, especially if they're on stimulant medications, they get hungry later on. Something small can be helpful. And especially if you're using something like almonds or turkey, because that's actually going to help the body fall asleep. So that can be helpful. So those are looking at the habits. We also need to look at our sleep environment. So all of these pieces are important. So of course, we want to make the bedroom only for sleeping if we can, getting rid of, like I said, video games, screens, phones, um, books. My girls have books in their room, but they don't have anything else. They don't have toys. They don't have anything else engaging because we really want to pair that brain with sleep. And so the environment is part of that too. So if they're having to study and, and do their homework and they're getting stressed out in their bedroom and all of these things, that's not great because their brain is being paired with all of this other stress as well. So we want to make sure we're pairing that. Now you can set the right environment just by doing things like dimming the lights in the evening and even lowering our voices can be really helpful. So just lowering that noise and light and stimulus input, all of that can be really helpful. We have to have a quiet room. No noise, that's really important. The other important piece too is a dark room. Darkness is so important to boost that melatonin and that's our natural hormone to regulate our sleep. So working on sleeping without the door cracked and without a light on is one of the first things I do with the anxious kiddos anyway, because so many of my anxious kiddos, that's one of the things, you know, where they're like, oh, I can't talk to people or I'm nervous about this. Nobody ever thinks about the light. And so that for me is actually the one of the first things that I want to get rid of because we know that that's going to help their sleep when we can get them sleeping in darkness. So we can start working on rewiring the anxious brain on the one hand, but really the ultimate goal is getting them, you know, an optimal sort of sleep environment so that they can, can fall asleep. And when we're optimizing the sleep environment, we really need to remember that our bodies need to cool the sleep, like I already said. Um, so we got to look at not just what we're doing right before that could be heating or cooling our body up, but even what the sleep temperature is. I remember one family that I worked with, they, it was just such sleep was a problem, problem, problem. They had gone to so many professionals and tried all these different sleep training programs. But I asked what he was wearing, like, what does he wear to bed? And they had so many layers on this kid. <laughs> so they had like, I mean, he was old enough. It wasn't really a onesie, but he had almost like a t-shirt and boxer shorts. But then they had like long johns and then they had a one, um, not a onesie. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a onesie? Like with the, the feet that go into the slippers and like that whole onesie sort of pajamas. So he's wearing all of these layers. And so I'm like, no wonder he can't sleep. <laughs> he's so hot. And so sure enough, they stripped him down, like get his feet uncovered, because that's going to make him so hot. So they stripped him down just to like, they got rid of the onesie and the long johns and just down to, they did have a long sleeve, um, like pajama top, and then his boxer shorts and sleep wasn't an issue after that. That was it. 
they knew everything else that they needed to do. It was just, he was so hot. He couldn't stay asleep. He couldn't fall asleep, couldn't stay asleep. So we want to make sure the temperature is nice and cool. The cooler, the better, but of course we don't want to make it too cold. My husband, he sleeps with his, just his boxers and he'll have the window open in the middle of the winter, but then I'm freezing. Um, and so there are people, and I think I'm one of these people that just can't regulate their body temperature, especially during that REM sleep. So we really want to make sure it's a consistent temperature that doesn't disrupt sleep. We don't want it too hot. We don't want it too cold, especially during that REM, because that's the restorative sleep stage. Um, and so if we're disrupting that because we're too hot or too cold, our body just doesn't have a chance to restore, doesn't have a chance to repair itself. And then we're not going to have the normal sleep cycle the next night. So, you know, it's just on and on <laughs> another vicious cycle that we can fall into. So a good temperature, 18 degrees Celsius, about 65 Fahrenheit. That's pretty good. Other things to think about, uh, having a comfy bed, having a comfy pillow, that even just nice feeling sheets, those are really important where you can just get into bed. I love my oldest daughter. She's just got the most comfortable bed with the most comfortable, like the sheets are so, I love the feel of them and her pillow, just everything's so comfy. I could fall asleep instantly. And so those are things that we want to think about, often things that we don't necessarily think about, but we want to just optimize that sleeping environment. There's a lot of research out there, too, showing that a fresh smelling room can help us feel more relaxed. For all of you with teenage boys or, well, in my case, teenage girls, man, their rooms can reek so bad. But my youngest daughter, she got she got a vanilla car scent. Um, like, you know, those little tree scent things. It's a vanilla one. So every time I go in there, I'm like, it smells like a teenage boy's car in here, but it's actually quite nice. I got to say, I'm always wanting to fall asleep in her room because it does smell so nice. And it's really been helping her get to sleep. We know though, like, I don't know what the research is on vanilla car scent things, but we know lavender, that's really good for sleep and it can have a calming effect. So finding what those smells might be for your kiddo can be really helpful. Now, I already have talked about pairing the brain with sleep, just like the brain pairs. It likes to make these associations. And I already talked about the bedtime routine, but there's other things that kiddos can do once they're in bed to help them as well. So we're already pairing, brushing my teeth, getting my pajamas on, dimming the lights. You know, going through this routine is already getting the brain prepared to be able to go to sleep. But once they're in bed, if they're still having problems, they can do a little meditation. You don't want to have a device in their room. So, you know, maybe doing one with you could be good. Um, I'll often do a meditation with my daughter and then take out the phone because it's usually on the phone. It's an app or something. But we also play an ABC game and she's actually loving that right now. And I've been using it for myself too, just to get to sleep. And then um, even if I wake up, I'll, I'll just play the ABC game. And it's amazing because our brains pair, oh, ABC game sleep. So the ABC game is just picking a category and you go through the alphabet from A to Z. Um, naming things from that category. So, you know, in one of them, um, like it could be, why am I drawing a blank? Like animals, right? So, or dogs, names of dogs. So Akbash, Border Collie, Chihuahua. So you just go through the alphabet. And if you can't find something like an X. I don't know if I could think of an X dog. I don't know. But if you can't think of anything, you think of it for a couple of seconds 
and then you can move on. But finding something like that to do each night, that can get the brain to suddenly realize, ah, this means sleep. We're going through our categories. We're going through the alphabet. And sure enough, I mean, the first few times my daughter and I took a couple of rounds, like we did animals and then maybe we did chocolate bars, for example. So it would do that. But now we can't even get through the full alphabet once before falling asleep. She's already like just the other day she was on like L and she's like, okay, mommy, I'm done. And she's falling asleep. Um, and, you know, and it'll be like that. Kate, let's do the alphabet game. We're going to do this category A, B, out. So it really does work. Uh, waking with the sun, having waking with light, that's always ideal. And I know from once we get into the winter, the thick of winter, depending on where you live, that can be really impossible. At my house, we have these sun lamps. So it wakes with us. And it's awesome because, you know, we'll set the alarm seven o'clock, let's say, and then 20 minutes before that alarm, the light starts to come on. So our bodies, by the time the alarm goes off, we're actually wide awake. Our bodies are wide awake. Our brain's wide awake. We're alert before that alarm goes off. So our body's clock, it resets every day using that light. So we want to make sure that we have that light exposure first thing in the morning to wake up our systems and, and, and make sure that we're alert. My dog is back into my recycling bin here. Ideally, we want kiddos waking before the alarm clock. So that could be really important, thinking about that. If they're not waking up about, you know, 10 minutes, ideally, before you've had to come in and wake them up or before, you know, if you haven't established a new bedtime routine yet or anything, you're going to need to probably rework that bedtime until they can wake up on their own. I'd, I'd move bedtime a little bit earlier, even just 10 to 15 minutes and see the best time you know, are they able to wake? If we just tweak it 10 more minutes, can they wake up on their own? That's how you're going to know if you found the best bedtime when they're able to wake up on their own. One last note um, that I just really want to emphasize, you know, again, I've already hampered on how important sleep is, but, but really, truly, we cannot overlook it. If it's not already part of your intervention plan, you've got to make it because I, I just don't think we all know it, but I don't think we give it the attention it actually needs. We really have to get that buy-in. We have to really talk about how important sleep is because whether it's our anxious kids or, or, or the anxious parents or just anxious families, everyone, that, that sleep and mental health piece, it goes hand in hand. So if you want resilience, you have to have sleep. You can't have one without the other. Just one bad night of sleep, that can dramatically affect the mood the next day. So making that a priority, it's so critical because our progress, like I said, we're really not going to make much progress without it. That progress is limited. And really their overall emotional, social, behavioral sort of functioning, all of that's minimal. Their well-being is going to be disrupted. So if they're not getting that sleep, we got to think about that. It has to be a focus as part of your intervention if sleep is already a problem. And it's really important, like I said, to have the whole the whole family involved. It's not just the one kiddo because parents, they're not going to be able to respond to anxiety and to, and to the behaviors themselves in helpful ways. And we know half the battle with anxiety, actually the most of the battle is parents being able to respond to their anxious kiddo in helpful ways. And so if they're tired as well, it's just going to perpetuate the problem. So it's so important. Really look at sleep. Lots to think about. Thank you for joining me today and I will see you next time.